Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us today. Most police officers are, of course, never involved in a shooting during their careers. But according to a new investigative report by NPR, officers who are involved in shootings often shoot more than once, and they rarely face consequences. One officer here in Detroit was involved in five shootings, two off-duty and three on-duty during his 24-year career with the Detroit Police Department. One of those shootings was fatal. NPR Cheryl W. Thompson reports that Gerald Blanding, quote, also shot a pigeon, was investigated over assaults on police officers, improper conduct, harassment, excessive use of force, domestic violence, and threats. Yet he kept his job. Thompson's report is an in-depth investigation that shows us a side of fatal police shootings of unarmed black people that reveals really, really troubling patterns. And she joins us now to talk about her work on this subject. Cheryl Thompson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's start with this story of now retired Detroit police officer Gerald Blanding, uh, all of the incidents he was involved in, and why he was able to stay on the job until he retired with a full pension. Well, I think that's a great question, and I think that's one you should ask of your police chief, because I reached out and and he declined to talk to NPR about this. But um, you're right, uh, Mr. Blanding, 24 years on the force, had incident after incident, five shootings, um, and just continued to stay on the force without much disciplinary action. Yeah. We, we should note that Officer Blanding is an African-American man. But what do you think this story tells us about the ways black and brown people are disproportionately affected by fatal police shootings and other forms of police brutality? That is what uh, your your reporting is about here. Well, I think, you know, when I started this, Stephen, I, I wanted to just, you know, when I went into this, it was sort of looking at, hmm, I wonder how many, how many black folk are fatally shot by police. I mean, we all know, you know, the, the cases, the Michael Brown and George Floyd, who was, you know, not shot, but I was just sort of curious about it. And I had covered police for many years during my 22 years at the Washington Post. And so I was just sort of curious about it. And I went into it not knowing what I was going to find. Um, and then patterns started emerging. Um, and, um, you know, people think that, you know, uh, the Black folk who are killed by police are, the officers are all white. They're, they're not. A majority are, though, three quarters of them, about 75% of those who fatally shot unarmed Black people are white. But, you know, the other patterns that emerged for me were um, the fact that uh, there were rookies on the force and there were Officers, the key finding, I think, was that there were officers who were involved in anywhere from two to five shootings, including Officer Blanding, um, over the course of their careers. And often they were deadly and most often without consequences. Mm. So, mm -hmm. and, and this reporting, uh, what does it tell us about the, the numbers? That's one of the things that when we talk about this issue on this show, I always get 
feedback from people who say, well, you know, yeah, you're talking about these incidents, but they aren't that prevalent. And most officers, even as I said in the in the opening, aren't involved in in these kind of shootings. And yet we do know from from your reporting that this is not a rare occurrence. This is not something uh, that, that that just happens every once in a while. There is there is a systematic problem with use of force and use of deadly force uh, against black and brown people in this country. Well, there is, and there there has been for a long time. Um, it's just you know since Michael Brown, really that has come to the forefront and become more public, and that people have said, wait a minute, you know this is happening way too often. I mean, I got you know after this story aired and ran, I got emails from people on both sides. And, and a couple of the emails I got where people said, well, you know, there's an overwhelming number of white people who are killed by police. And I go, well, yeah, but, you know, they're the majority in this country too. Um, so, you know, the numbers, I mean, you can play, people play with numbers all the time. Um, but I just, I thought it was important really to tell the stories, not only of the shootings, but the officers behind them, because I think that's what we haven't done. It's like, who are these people? Who are these officers? What's their history? What's their background? You know, why? What leads them to to, if anything, to do these you know these these shootings? Yeah. And why is it that some officers can shoot more than once, um, and then you're right, other officers go their whole careers without firing a weapon? Mm. What is it? What's going on? So, so tell us more about Gerald Blanding. I I read just a little of the incidents that he was uh, involved in, but but tell us more about who this person was and what kind of officer he was. Well, um, Mr. Blanding spent 22 years on that force, and he had um, five shootings. If you if you look at the look when I, when I when I did this and I decided which police officer to sort of zero in on, it was really a matter of like what I thought would be, uh, was interesting, would be interesting to, to readers and listeners. And he was one because how many officers have five shootings? And also the other thing about him that was interesting was when I submitted a freedom of information request for his file, I got over 1,700 pages. What police officer has a 1,700-plus page file? <laughs> um, and so I thought, oh, my goodness, this is going to be interesting reading, if nothing else. Um, and, it, and it really was. Um, he was almost from, you know, within three years or so after he was hired. He was hired in 94. Um, he shot a man while off duty at a Detroit nightclub. Um, that victim survived. And then a year later, he was involved in another off-duty non-fatal shooting at an ATM after a man who was confused, mistakenly tried to get into Officer Blanding's car. Um, he he was exonerated in both incidents. And then, you know, a year uh, or so after that, an internal affairs investigation found that he had displayed improper conduct after assaulting a female officer um, who he was dating at the time. And then, you know, in 2002, he was accused of making threats. And then in 2003, another internal affairs investigation. And this time it was into his excessive use of force. He's had, you know, several uh, out of countless uh, citizen complaints. Um, and then he had his third shooting in 2004 while working in drug enforcement. That man survived, even though I think he later died some, some years later. 
Uh, and then in 2015, Officer Blanding fired 16 shots or so at a man inside a car during this domestic dispute. And then um, two years later, his last um, and fatal shooting was in the backyard of this abandoned home. And I believe it was west, the west side of, of the city. Um, he fatally shot 19-year-old Raynard Burton. And that happened when he and his partner were patrolling this neighborhood and this car whizzed past them and they went after it. This car spun out of control, crashed into a building. The occupant, who was Mr. Burton, got out and ran. And then one thing led to another. Blanding caught him, claimed he saw this teenager grab at his waist as if he had a weapon. And so they struggled and, and Officer Blanding shot him once in the chest before you know, calling for his partner and his supervisor and his union steward. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I want to talk more about that union steward and the role that police unions play in this story in a in, in a little bit. But, but first, put this story in in context for us. That's I mean, th- that's an incredible number of incidents to have during. A fourteen-year career as a as a police officer, and as you point 24. out, 24. 24, That's right. Uh, Don't uh, want to shortchange it. <laughs> that's right. He had twenty-four. He all twenty-four of those years. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and and uh, as you point out, nothing nothing was done in the way of consequence uh, for 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 those incidents. How common is that? If we go to other cities around the country. And look at the at the things that you are looking at in terms of uh, officers and their conduct. How often is it that you have somebody who just does this over and over and over again? Well, of the officers of these hundred and thirty five cases that I found, um, and these some of these officers were on duty at their fatal shooting and off duty depends. He was certainly by far. Um, the officer who had the most shootings. I mean, there was another officer, there's an officer in Maryland here who had three shootings, um, but five was unheard of. Um, So that is definitely rare among the officers that I looked into. And so then let's talk about police unions and the way that they play a role in in this story. Of course, police unions exist uh, to make sure that you know officers are not retaliated against by their employers, they make sure that wages and retirement plans uh, are are sufficient for office officers. But when officers get into trouble, they play a, they play a, a different role. Uh, talk about what that looks like. Well, I mean, you're a you're a native Michigander. I'm a native Chicagoan. I mean, we know the 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 power of unions of of, of all kinds of unions, right? Um, but and police unions absolutely serve a purpose. Unions serve a purpose. A lot of people will tell you. Um, and in in this case, though, and in the case of some of the officers. Um, that they play a major role in shielding officers. Um, I talked to one of the criminal, one of criminologists I've known for years, Richard Rosenfeld, who's a criminology professor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And he said, basically the most immediate obstacle is the union contract, right? The unions in the name of due process have made it tough 
to remove officers whose records indicate that they engaged in serious misconduct, right? I mean, go back to your former police chief, Isaiah McKinnon, who I also spoke with, and he totally agreed. He said city officials and police supervisors and everyone else involved in negotiating the contracts, he also said they're to blame too because they they are part of the negotiations and so they could, you know, call for stricter rules or less stringent things, but um, they are to blame for department's inability to get rid of officers who repeatedly violate policy. Mm. He told me, he was, he had told me when he was police chief, he said, you know, I, I tried to fire um, officers and he said, I would terminate them and see if they would fight their way back. And he said, and most of them do because why? Because of that union contract. I'm talking with uh, Cheryl Thompson, who's an investigative correspondent for NPR. Her latest report details uh, fatal police shootings of unarmed African-Americans, revealing some really troubling patterns, including right here in Detroit. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you think needs to be done to address the issue of police brutality in this country, especially in the ways it disproportionately affects black and brown communities. This is a subject that we talk about a lot here on uh, Detroit Today. Uh, We would really love to hear what you think about uh, the ways in which we ought to be addressing this. Do you believe this is a problem that can be solved through police reforms? Or do you believe that it is uh, entirely intentional and sewn into the very fabric of our criminal justice system in this country? Is it a problem with policing itself uh, as much as it is a problem with individual officers? Uh, Give us a call and uh, let us know if you've experienced this kind of run-in with a police officer here in Detroit or in Metro Detroit, anywhere in southeast Michigan. Uh, We would love to hear from you if uh, you feel like you've been a victim of police brutality. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Cheryl, I want to ask you that question that I just posed to to listeners about the nature uh, of this problem. Is this a problem that can be solved through police reforms uh, or is it a problem with policing itself? In other words, is this about individuals, rogue individuals who are doing things uh, they shouldn't be doing? Or is this something about the the way we constitute uh, police departments, the way we structure them and hold them accountable? I think it's probably a little of both. Um, certainly most police officers, you know, come to work, do their jobs, go home, right? And I, and I certainly um, am not suggesting in my story that these police officers who, who fatally shot people are bad cops and bad people. Um, you know, sometimes, I mean, listen, police officers have a, a, a dangerous job. They have to, you know, sometimes have to make a decision in a split second. Um, but but when you have officers who are on the force for a, a while or, or, or not and, and just have repeated incidents of uh, uh, 
have repeated incidents that appear that they're troubled or, you know, maybe somebody should take a closer look. That sort of, you know, Officer Blanding, 24 years on the force, all of these things happened. No one did anything, right, until 2018 when he got into trouble um, by showing up at the scene of an accident um, and he was allegedly, um, allegedly had been drinking and sort of, you know, allegedly mistreated his his fellow officers who were there to investigate. And that's what that's when the de department took action it was only after the prosecutor then charged him with 19 counts. Yeah. Um, and and that's and then he ultimately they told him he had to retire. Yeah. Um, but but he now is retired with a full pension. You know, had he been fired um, I was told by someone in the police department that he wouldn't have gotten his full pension. I don't know whether that's true. I don't know Detroit's police department as well as I know DC police department. Um, but you know, so it's, I think it's a little of both. I think most police departments and most officers, again, try to do the right thing, but things happen and, and, you know, and they happen now they're happening more and it's, the light is shining more on it. So that's why it has become an issue. Yeah. Uh, because this has been going on for years, Stephen. Sure. You know, this Decades. is nothing this, to you and me. This is nothing new, right? We're familiar with this. Um, but but now it's like, okay, people are starting to pay attention. And so the question is, what are, what are police departments going to do about this? Are they going to get rid of police officers who, um, you know, get into trouble repeatedly can they because of the police unions you know i don't know i mean there was one of the officers involved in the brianna taylor shooting um was one of my um i i looked at him and found that the records i got from that he had been at a another police department he had been in the lexington police department before he came to louisville and that he had gotten into some trouble there uh, with violating uh policy and violating orders police orders and so they basically said, you know what, maybe you're better suited somewhere else. And so, but instead of firing him, they allowed him to resign so that he could get a job at another police department. And he resigned in December of, um, I want to say it was 2002. And then a few months later, he went to the Louisville Police Department and he stayed there until the Breonna Taylor killing. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, had he been fired, would the Louisville Police Department hired him? Who knows? Yeah, that problem of officers moving around when they get into trouble is something that I've seen some really good reporting on, including uh, in the Detroit Free Press uh, here, one of the local one of the local dailies uh, did a, an extensive report on on how common that is. And it's not even, uh, you know, as you point out, moving from uh, Lexington to Louisville and, and Kentucky is just, you know, an hour down the road. Uh, in some cases here in Metro Detroit, they just go from one suburb to the to the to the next uh, and continue uh, to police. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Cheryl Thompson. We will also get to your calls. Lydia in Royal Oak, Patricia in Gross Point, Ed in Detroit, Cindy in the Cass Corridor. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 
WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest is Cheryl W. Thompson. She is an investigative correspondent for NPR, and her latest report details fatal police shootings of unarmed African Americans. It reveals a number of troubling patterns, including right here in the city of Detroit. We're talking about police brutality and the consequences that police officers face or don't face uh, when they're involved in these kinds of incidents. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and uh, put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, let's start with Patricia in Gross Point. Patricia, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Hi. My comment is that I'm concerned about the target practice that police um, use when they are boning up their uh, shooting skills. It's been brought to my attention, and I have looked it up, and the majority, if not all, of the targets look like African-American men. Mm. The features um, are Negroid. No matter whether the target is all black or whether it's all white, the features in the face are Negroid features, which I think reinforces uh, on a psychological or subliminal uh, way that they should shoot Negro men mm. or black men, mm. African American men, Hispanic men. Patricia, I, and my other yeah, and my other comment is that yeah. they, I do not think that they always have to shoot center mass. They could shoot them in their leg, their arm, their foot. I don't understand why they have to shoot them dead center mass. Right in in, in the chest them. area, right, which is what yes, they're taught. They're, in they're terms more of... humane when they shoot elephants. Yeah. You can shoot them with a stun gun and knock them out. Yeah. Patricia, I re- appreciate the call and and your comments. Uh, uh, Cheryl Thompson, let's first take the question of training and whether uh, whether police are being conditioned to think that black men, brown men are are uh, the, the targets they ought to be aiming for through the the way that they're trained at gun ranges. Well, you know. Um... They are taught to shoot, you know, you, you shoot to kill, you, you know, that's their lives are at stake too. the police officers. So, you know, I, I don't, that's how they're trained. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there are, um, I'm still stuck on her first comment. Right. Sorry. This idea of, of <laughs> black faces being the target. I don't, I don't know if that's the case. She says that, that she's seen evidence that that's true. Well, I, I'd like to know what the, uh, I hate the word, but the black features are. I'm not sure what she means mm. by that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, and yeah. Um, so 
go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. no, I, I, you know, you I, a moment there, Stephen. <laughs> right. The, 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 one of our producers, uh, Jake Neer, our senior producer, says that there are documented reports of police officers shooting photos of black people in Florida, for instance. And oh, there's okay. been reports of okay. that. Well, you know what? One of, the, one of the other criminologists I talked to for this story was saying we were talking about, you know, like shooting unarmed black people, right? And he was saying that a lot of the white officers are naturally fearful of black people hmm. in general because they they may not have grown up with black folk. They didn't go to school with them. They go to, they, you know, they worship at different places. They go to different grocery stores, you know? And so they, because they don't know us, they are inherently fearful of us. Hmm. Yes. And yeah. I thought that was sort of an interesting take yes. on it. Yeah. Uh, Patricia, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Lydia in Royal Oak. Lydia, welcome to the show. Uh, yes, I had a son that was interested in becoming a police officer when he was, uh, I think it was 2014. He was in Detroit. He was assaulted by a police officer. They broke his teeth. Oh. There's a police officer acting under color of law at the Masonic Temple. His brother was there. We don't know if it was a case of mistaken identity. We don't know why. But it, eventually they released him after beating the crap out of him for a while. And uh, they said, if you tell anybody about this, we'll say you tried to assault a police officer. And obviously he was not trying to assault a police officer because if he was, he would have been arrested. So, so I think that officers in general, you know, it's really tough to generalize. They're, this is a kid who wanted to be a police officer, who, who admired them, who basically ended up with like PTSD from being assaulted. Mm. And, you know, you, it's really hard to paint them all with one brush, and, but it ruined it for my kid, you know. So, so, so I'm curious whether you pursued any kind of responsibility or accountability for this with, with the police department. Okay, so what we discovered was the person who did it was actually local to our neighborhood. And my son, his name I'm not going to say, um, I gave him the choice about whether to pursue. We, we did talk to a lawyer who's very well-versed in this kind of stuff and has successfully pursued lawsuits against police departments. He said we had a case, a big case, an easy case. But he was afraid because he thought that he would be stopped for everything. Mm. So... Um, so I, I just, I just want to make the point that it's just so hard, you know, you something they did in Florida. I, I'm, you know, listening very attentively to this idea that they're targeting people with African-American features here. The targets are faceless. I, you know, I know a, a little bit about this stuff and it's just kind of, it, the challenge in all of this is, you know, kind of painting it all with one brush and then solve having solutions that are, I think are maybe different regions have different issues yeah. you know or and then you've got individual police officers who are problematic and others sure. that are wonderful yeah. so I, it's a huge problem and that's all i wanted to weigh in on was yeah. just Lydia, I, I appreciate so many variables yeah i appreciate the call and what 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 really strikes me about what you're saying here is the fear that you feel for your son or for your family if you say something if you go to the oh, police yeah. department and say, hey, this happened and you need to hold that officer accountable. I mean, that that mm -hmm. is exactly mm -hmm. the opposite of 
what people should be feeling about uh, this kind of thing. They should be, uh, you know, comfortable uh, going and saying, look, this happened and we need to do something about it. Cheryl Thompson, I wonder in your reporting uh, if that kind of dynamic uh, shows itself, that, that one of the problems is that this creates a fear among the people the police are supposed to be protecting that prevents them from, from speaking up when these things happen. Yeah, it doesn't. And let me say, Lydia, I'm sorry that your son was assaulted by anyone, right? Nobody should have to be assaulted. Um, it happened in, in Georgia. Uh, one of the officers I wrote about, there was um, uh, this, this guy was turned down by a police department because he had all these red flags, right? I mean, he had domestic abuse. They asked him, you know, various questions and they thought that he was not truthful on his um, truth verification exam and these kind of things. So they rejected him. He goes eight miles down the road. Um, and this is a white officer to uh, another small town and with with those red flags plus and they ignore them and they hire him and actually um, two I know there were at least two incidents involving black people with this officer one was a guy who had complained to the chief about this uh, this young officer and the next day he said the officer was sitting out in front of his house basically sort of like, mm. you know, as like a bully, right? Like, oh, you go to my chief. Okay. I, I just want you to know, I know where you live. I know who you are. Right. And, but he filed a complaint. And then another young woman was driving and he stopped her because he said she failed to signal when she changed lanes. And, you know, it was, and she thought that he was racially profiling her. So, you know, these things do happen. You know, she complained clearly, um, as did the, the, the man. Um, and he stayed on the force until he killed someone. And mm. then um, he was he was charged with murder. Wow. But he got off, by the way. He, he was charged with murder. They found him not guilty, but they found him guilty of violation of his public oath. And he was sentenced to a year and he did seven months and he's back on the street. Mm. So. Uh, again, uh, Lydia, I'm really sorry about what happened to your son, but I'm really glad you called to uh, to share that with us. Uh, let's quickly go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome. As usual, a timely and important conversation. Thank you. Uh, uh, I, you're, you're, there are three issues I wanted to mention, two of which your guest has mentioned. One of them, the problem of contracts and how to balance the government's role as an employer and and the, and the police officers as employees in the disciplinary uh, process. Uh, the, the, the other is, of course, training. Now, I've known a number of officers in my life in Detroit and other cities, only three of whom have ever discharged a weapon at another human. One, as a police officer in Detroit, fortunately, the man he shot survived. The other two discharged their weapons when they were in the U.S. Armed Forces engaged in wars abroad. Um, the, all the other officers I've known in my life have never fired their weapon outside of the range. But the other problem I think is underlying these issues is the scandalous common law doctrine of qualified immunity mm. that the United States Supreme Court created in the early 80s. It has effectively come down, I think, in police work as a get-out-of-jail-free card. If a police officer violates the law or the rules and causes harm to someone, that officer should be subject 
to being sued just as their employer is going to be sued. Mm. And if they're found responsible, you'd have to pony up some money. Yeah. In other words, insurance companies need to create a police malpractice insurance policy as they do for lawyers and, and doctors and nurses. Mm. So, and if we do that, some of this, I think, will be dealt with. Not so, Ed, I, that's a really, I, that's a really interesting uh, argument, and, and I, I think there is at least some space right now for that conversation. I mean, I feel, I feel like a lot of people are, are going to that space to talk about qualified immunity and the, and the role it plays in, in all of that. Um, uh, Cheryl, I want to, I know you're, you're short on time, but, but I want to quickly get you to respond to what Ed's saying here. No, he's right. When, 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 um, when people file suits, against officers are really filing it against the department, right? right. And the city um, that often, or the insurance company, whoever, it's never the individual officer right. has to fork over the money, right? I mean, A, they probably don't have it because we're talking millions. I have a case in California where the family, a jury awarded a family of an unarmed black man, $33.5 million. Wow. Um, and even in Detroit, Gerald Blanding, um, there was one, um, the, the 2015 incident where he shot the fired 16 shots at a guy, that guy sued and settled with the city for almost $98,000. Mm. Right. And, and there's a pending suit by the, the family of Raynard Burton. So we don't know what that's going to end with, if any amount, but yeah, I mean, the officers never, no, they never have to, um, cough up money. It's an interesting, it's an interesting um, point. Yeah. It's a, it's a displacement of, of accountability. Yeah. 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 I mean, would that really do, would, would that stop them, you know, from shooting? I I guarantee you they're not thinking, oh my God, if I shoot this guy, I'm going to have to like pay millions. Right. Right. They're not thinking that at the time. So, but, but it's an interesting point that your caller raises. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. uh, Cheryl Thompson, investigative correspondent, for NPR, uh, really wonderful to have you here for this conversation, and congratulations on the reporting. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about another incredible investigative report involving Michigan and criminal justice, this one about the reasons we don't stop people who have personal protection orders against them from having guns. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. 